Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see your faces. Uh, for those of you who are joining us on live stream, uh, I'm glad you're with us. We are a church in a lot of different locations. Moving forward, we'll have an 8.30 and an 11 o'clock in-person service. And at least for the next couple of weeks or next few weeks, we'll just have an 11 o'clock option. So thank you for those of you who are joining in. And a lot of us are choosing right now to move at different paces in life and for many good reasons. And I'm grateful for the ways that God has allowed us to stay connected through it all. So for those of you who are here, it's good to see at least your eyes and what, what feels like some smiles today. Uh, how many of you here in person or online, you can raise your hand or give me a thumbs up. How many of you, it was like a war zone in your neighborhood last night? Anybody? Uh, you're probably listening to things and you're like, that was legal. That was legal. That was not legal. That one was legal. Uh, our dog has had two and a half weeks that are going to put him in therapy probably for the rest of his life. At least in our neighborhood, we've had two and a half weeks of fireworks every single night dating back before Juneteenth, uh, which Juneteenth has been very educational for me, especially in my neighborhood over the last couple of weeks and now through July 4th. So happy July 4th weekend for all of us. Um, Casey and I take a trip every year with no kids. I don't know what it's going to look like in 2020, but we get away from our kids. We get away just to be with each other. And when we do that, we celebrate and we reflect. We celebrate on, on wh what has been good in our marriage and what has worked and how our family is. And then we also reflect on, okay, what are some things we need to do better? How, how do we need to connect better in, in the months and over this next year? It's been really helpful for us, one of the best disciplines for us in our lives. And I have found myself doing that over the last couple of weeks too, just as I think about our country. In our country, and this weekend you've probably done this, there's so many things to celebrate and there are times we reflect on what are some things we can do better. This is a great place to live. And we want to help live into a future that is good for, for all people. Uh, we're uh, right now trying to navigate cultural and, and social climate. We're trying to navigate COVID-19. And, and I don't know about you, but there are days it feels like I'm trying to navigate life while I'm in quicksand. Like it's hard for me to move. And I'm seeking the Lord for wisdom and not really sure how to move. And sometimes wanting to move, but I can't move. And a little simple elementary reminder to us all, but just keep looking at Jesus. Jesus has helped the church navigate hard times before, and Jesus is going to help the church navigate times now too. Um, for some of you, like your, your grief or some pain you've been experiencing, it was there prior to March, prior to like pre-COVID. It's been there for a while. I don't know who it is who made this statement, but it resonated with me this past week that sometimes grief and pain is like having broken ribs where nobody sees it from the outside, but with every breath inside of you, it hurts. And it may be, it may be what some of you are feeling right now. And one thing I've, I've kind of formed some of my life on, especially, especially over the last decade, is sometimes how we move into the future with God is not going to be like how we've walked with, in, with God in the past. And it's not necessarily because God has changed, but so much of life has changed. It's not going to look the same, but we're pressing into the faithfulness of God together as a church. That's what we're doing. Uh, so over the next four weeks, so all the Sundays in July, I want to do a series called Failing Gods. And Justin, Ardry, and I went back and forth on what should the title be and the subtitle. And we're bouncing ideas off each other. And we kind of settled on either false gods or failing gods. And I chose to go with failing gods. So over the next few weeks, I want to talk about idolatry. Not in a way where I'm trying to like hit you with a whip, like you better get your life right. But in a way that I'm trying to invite us into a 
a greater form of transformation. Because if you're like me over the last few months, there are things that I have placed a lot of trust in my life in, whether it's finances or the stock market or certain relationships. And there are a lot of gods or things we have allowed to become idols in our lives that it's not necessarily that they're false. They could even be good things. It's that if we rely on them to bring ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction, they're going to fail us every time. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 today. It's the Ten Commandments. If you've been in church very long at all in your life, you've heard about the Ten Commandments. A couple of years ago, I sat down with a Jewish rabbi here in our city. There are times I find myself at a table with Jewish rabbis, whether it's uh, conversations about justice that are happening throughout Memphis, or, or sometimes I just like sitting with a rabbi and bouncing, especially Old Testament stuff, off of them about just faith and suffering and theology. So I sat down with Rabbi Micah. He's a rabbi at Temp- Temple Israel here in town. We went to Blue Plate. We sat down at Blue Plate. I ordered pancakes with the peanut butter syrup. Have any of you ever had those at Blue Plate, the peanut butter syrup? It's low fat. I mean, it's really good for you. Pour a bunch of it on there. Delicious. So we're sitting there. I'm eating pancakes. He got some bland oatmeal. Some some people choose to do that. I'm not going to judge them. And we're sitting there eating breakfast. And I wanted to process the Ten Commandments. I was about to preach a series on the Ten Commandments here at Sycamore View. And I wanted to process this with him. And as I did, he looked at me, and he was not being combative when he asked this question. He said, Josh, before we go any further, let me just ask you a question. How do do the Ten Commandments begin? And when he said that, I was like, I don't know if this is a trick question or what, but I've been in church all my life. I know the Ten Commandments. I know how they begin. He said, how do they begin? I said, they begin with no other, don't have any other gods before me. And he said, that's wrong. And I wanted to argue with him because I'm like, dude, I read, I read my Bible a lot. Maybe you don't read the NIV, but if you read your Bible, you'll see that's the first command. But then I thought he reads straight from the Hebrew. So he's probably got a leg up on me. I took a few semesters of Hebrew. I know just about, uh, enough to like get me in trouble. And he said, no. And, and this was so huge in my life. Listen to this. He said, Josh, the Ten Commandments begins with ten words before you read about the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 20, verse 2, the way Exodus 20 begins is this. God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, in the English, that's not ten words. In the Hebrew, that's ten words. And this rabbi said, before you even start talking about the Ten Commandments, you need to hear those ten words. Because before God starts giving rules or commandments, God makes an announcement about God's self. Before God lays down these rules and commands for us to follow this law, what God God begins by revealing who God is. And right there over breakfast, there was like this light that just appeared in my head. Like I've never seen the Ten Commandments just like that. That here's God saying, hey, before we get into the commandments, I want you to know this is who I am. This is who your God is. This is what God has done for God's people. And I don't know what your Egypt and your life has been, but God has brought you out of that. God is trying to bring you out of anything that is holding you bondage. And it's God declaring, look, here's who God is. God is bringing you out of that place to take you to a new place. This is who our God is. Now, there are a couple of different ways that I think we should read the Ten Commandments. One is that like wedding vows. 
which begins with God saying, hey, me and me, only me, like I do, and now I want you to say I do, and we're going to live into a covenant together. It's these wedding vows, and many Jews talk about Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 as wedding vows. And another way to read the Ten Commandments is like this, that God is instructing a lot of former slaves, people who have been immersed in slavery for over 400 years, and God is teaching them what it means to be new people. He's teaching former slaves what it means to be new people. God is giving them a whole new way of life, which can basically be summed up with the greatest commandment we have in the Bible. You love God, you love your neighbor. You love God, and if you love God, you're also going to love your neighbor. And if you want to love your neighbor, you're going to learn what it means to also love the Lord your God. Now, eight of the Ten Commandments come to us in what looks like like, like they're negatively formulated, like don't do that. Don't bow down to other idols, don't murder, don't commit adultery. And it's not so much that there's just supposed to be negative, it's that God's wanting his people to protect the community from any behavior that may destroy the community. So with that in mind, it's not just that you don't murder people, it's that by loving God, you're going to protect and live for human life or created life anywhere it is. It's not just that you're not going to cheat on your spouse, but you're going to see that a marriage is supposed to be a witness to God's faithfulness for the whole world to see. It's not just that you don't covet. It's that you become confident in who God has created you to be. Like This is, this is how it's supposed to work. Now, there's a story we have of this guy that we know him as the rich young ruler who comes into the presence of Jesus. You can read this story in Luke 18, Matthew 19, and Mark chapter 10. And in this story, this guy comes to Jesus and the guy says, Hey, Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by listing a few of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, honor your parents. And those are the only ones, as far as we know, those are the only ones that Jesus quoted. I wonder what would have happened if Jesus said, don't bow your knee to anything else. Don't covet. Like, I don't know if those were ones that this guy was honoring or not. We just know he went away sad. Which tells us this. You can tangibly use the Ten Commandments as little boxes you check and totally miss out on God. You can try to honor all those Ten Commandments and not murder and not commit adultery and not steal your entire life, yet never have a discipline in your life of serving other people. So before you get to what we know as the Ten Commandments, it begins with God saying, look, here's who I am, and here's what I've done for you, and here's a new way I want you to live. And then in chapter 20, verse 3, we have what God is, what has come to us as the Ten Commandments. In 20, verse 3, it's, it's, it begins with, uh, no other gods before me, me and me alone. Now, some suggest that this is the most important of the Ten Commandments, that it's the basis for all of them. Martin Luther, the great reformer a few hundred years ago, said this, the fundamental motivation behind law-breaking is idolatry, and we never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. And then in chapter 20, verse 4 through 6, what comes to us is the second of the commandments. And only the second and the fourth have much of an explanation or a commentary on it. Most of the commandments are just don't steal, like don't murder, don't commit adultery. The last one may have a little bit, but the second and the fourth, it's a little more wordy. And here's how it goes. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down 
down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I don't think the way this works is that because you sinned or you ran a red light or you went, you rolled through a stoplight that you sinned and now three to four generations from now, God's going to strike your great, great, great grandchild with a, a stomach bug or something to punish them for what you did. And that's how God punishes to the third and fourth generation. I think what happens here is this, that when we make decisions for righteousness, it can be handed on to generations and generations to come. Many of us are where we are to, today in our faith and our belief in God, because we're standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And the way this works, too, is the decisions for disobedience and allowing addictions and form of bondage, forms of bondage to come into our lives can also go on to generations to come. Let me show you how this plays itself out just in the Old Testament alone. In 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you have what are called the high places. High places are associated with pagan temple or pagan gods. So they would build these poles up on hills or up on mountains, and you would go up and you would worship the gods. And this became a thing that the people of God started to do too. In some ways, they would go up to these poles, and they may worship them as if they're worshiping God, but then they would end up being brought into pagan forms of worship too. You have about 60 references to high places throughout the Bible. And I want to show you how it starts with King Solomon. And it goes on for generations and generations because no one broke the cycle. And this plays out in our lives today too. In 1 Kings, and I'm going to go fairly quickly. So write these down uh, or uh, take quick pictures if you want to. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. And this is King Solomon right here. It says, The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high place places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. This is King Solomon we're talking about. Now, King Solomon has a son, Jeroboam. And in chapter 12, verse 31, it says this, Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests for all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. So now we got more high priests or more uh, high places and priests to go with it. And chapter 13, 33, and this is after Jeroboam had this unbelievable encounter with God. It says this, even after this, Jeroboam did not change change his evil ways but once more appointed priests for the high priests from all sorts of people for the high places from all sorts of people anyone who wanted to become a priest he consecrated for the high places this is like Oprah right here of you can be a priest at a high place and you can be a priest at a high place where are the high places we can have priests if you want to be a priest you go and you lead a worship service there and it just kept going on in chapter 15, verse 14, it says, Although he did not remove the high places, Asa, who had a heart for God, his heart was fully committed to the Lord uh, all his life. In 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 3, and this is Joash, it says, The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. In chapter 14, verse 4, there's 
Amaziah. And it says, it's the exact same thing chapter 12 verse 3 says. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. It's like the author of 2 Kings is thinking, hey, there's no reason for me to describe this any differently from one generation to the next generation. The same thing is happening. The high places are there, and even when they're good people, they may not go worship there, but they're not taking them down. In 2 Kings 15.35, you had Jotham. And it says, The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. He's rebuilding the temple while also letting people go up to high places. In 2 Kings 17, verse 9, there's Ahaz. It says, The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. Now it's just spreading all over the place. They're building high places places everywhere. In 2 Kings 17.32, it says they worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. And then you get to Hezekiah. Generations later, in 2 Kings 18 verse 4, it says he removed the high places smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Finally somebody said, okay, we're not just going to leave them up there and let them rot. We got to get rid of them. Hezekiah dies. His son takes over. His son's 12 when he takes over. There's the influence in his son's life. And in chapter 21, verse 3, it says... He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Gave them brand new ones. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and he worshipped them. Generations and generations of high places. And at some point for the high places that exist in our lives too, somebody's got to not just set them aside, it's got to demolish them. The way this played out in the New Testament is that for the early church, there didn't seem to be high places on mountains or on hills that people would go to worship. But they're living in the midst of the Roman Empire where statues were being set up everywhere. And the longer, or as the early church progressed and grew, that there were, there were places that were asking people and demanding that people worship the emperor wherever they were. They even tried to set up a temp, uh, inside the temple in Jerusalem statues celebrating Roman Empire, the Roman Empire and, and Roman emperors, but it didn't work. But New Testament writers still spoke into idolatry. And they often did it in ways like this. In Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death, right? not just set aside, like put to death whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. It's any betrayal to one's loyalty to God, anything that is getting in the way between you and God. Because here's the thing, I think most of us here, most of you listening online, you have never been to a high place to bow your knee before some statue. We've never offered incense to idols. But every day we bow our knees to other things. Maybe we've never been inside of a pagan temple to worship. But every day there are voices vying for our allegiance. 
You've probably never lifted up a song and devoted that song to some other God that you're swearing your allegiance to. But sometimes our emotions and our attitudes and behaviors can ebb and flow right along with whatever the stock market is doing. We can confess with our lips that we want to seek first the kingdom of God, yet we can defend our political party or political conviction as if it's an eternal kingdom. There are Jewish philosophers who often said this, that the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. And I would say that the central principle of the Bible is salvation and transformation in and through Jesus, but that the rejection of idolatry helps lead the way to salvation and transformation in Jesus. Over the next few weeks, something I want to talk about is that idols aren't just to be removed from our life, our lives, but to be replaced. We don't just remove them, we replace them. We don't replace them with another idol or another little G-God, but anything we remove, anything we allow God to remove from our heart or our mind has to be replaced with something of God or else something else is going to come and take it over. We don't just remove them, we replace them. And I truly believe this, that God can do more with our acknowledgement that idols exist in our hearts and minds than God can do with our denial that they exist in us. So maybe the best thing isn't for us to say, I don't have any. Maybe it's for us to acknowledge, okay, maybe I do. Maybe there are some things growing in my heart and in my mind that do not line up with who God is. And we can trust ourselves in the presence of a loving, gracious, merciful God who desires and longs to see us be transformed in the image of Jesus. A long time ago, someone came to my office, and they walked in, and they said they needed to talk to me about something God had spoken into their life, their life the day before. And they had a bag when they walked into my office, and come to find out for this person, alcohol had become like a God in their life. So a person was coming to confess and wanted to hand this bag to me to do something with it. So if you're a preacher and somebody does this, what do you do with it? So I took it to the next elders meeting. I'm just joking. I really didn't do that. Okay. <clears throat> I decided what I was going to do with this. I was going to leave it in the corner of my office. So if something ever happens to me and people clean out my office, they're going to find this alcohol. And they're going to be like, what? what was Josh doing on Thursdays? But it's a reminder to me of somebody who is just letting go of something like, I can't have, let this be a part of my life anymore. I want more of God. And for me to have more of God, I've, I've got to let go of something else. And for you, for whatever it is that may be a form of bondage or addiction in your life, it may not mean you have to come to my office or meet with me to hand it over. But there is a God with open hands that you can meet with to, to hand it over. And trust that God knows what to do with it. So over the next few weeks, I don't feel the need to come at you with some prophetic voice of there's idolatry and we've got to set you straight. I want to come with a, a voice of just inviting us. There's a God who wants to see us be transformed into the image of Jesus. And we can do this together. There are things in life we've got to say no to so we can say yes to Jesus with greater intensity and emotion in our lives.
We're going to come to the table here in just a moment. Anna's going to come and lead us in that. But before we do, we're going to sing a song. And before we do that, will you just join me? Let's close our eyes, no matter where you are. Will you close your eyes, let's bow our heads, and let's pray. If you want to open your hands where you are just to receive from the Lord. God, give us the courage to let go of things we need to let go of so that we can cling to you with a deathly grip. God, and just as Daniel prayed in Daniel 9, God, we don't come to you right now praying to you or offering up supplication because we are so righteous, but because you are so merciful. I entered into this morning with concern over just my tone that I would use in talking about something like idolatry, and I just pray that you use me in the weeks to come to speak words that honor how much our God is alive and how much anything else that we invest in or put our trust in is never going to satisfy. May we become less and may Jesus become more in our lives and in this church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.